All right, let's talk about boys. We're going to talk about boys in this session. We're going to talk about girls in the next session. Um, and we're going to get right to it. There's a, a lot to cover. Um, we're going to move quick. And, and I appreciate Rick summarizing last night so I don't have to. So I'm just going to jump into it. And here's the gist of this morning. The foundation for understanding the goals of parenting um, is to understand what the end product is supposed to look like. So what we're going to spend some time in the first part of this session is looking at, <clears throat> from Scripture, what is it supposed to look like? And by it, I mean him, your sons. What is it supposed to look like when your son leaves your house to go into the world, <clears throat> um, whether he's saved or not, um, what does the Bible say is God's design for a man? And we're going to contrast that with um, the world's view of what a man looks like. And I think you're, you don't need me to convince you of this, but I want to convince you of this, that you have a lot of work to do. That raising boys in this culture um, is more difficult than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago in this country, in this culture. And much of what we we will look at this morning from Scripture is so counter to our culture that it, it, it's going to require parents to really make a concerted effort um, and, and have clearly in your mind um, what are the goals. And if you agree, mom and dad, on the goals of what those little boys are going to look like when they leave your home, a lot of the day-to-day -day parenting issues in gray areas become a lot easier and a lot clearer. And that's the goal. couple questions. First, for dads. What you really need to examine this morning is, are you an example of everything we're going to talk about this morning? And we said it last night. If you can be the example, um, it, it is an incredible um, teaching tool. Are you an example to your daughters? Do your daughters know who and what they want to marry someday in terms of a godly man by watching you? Uh, do your daughters even understand that they want to marry a godly man someday? Um, and do they know what that looks like? For moms, do your children know that you value your husband and, and honor his God-given role? And I'm hoping after this morning, if you can't articulate it now, you will be able to articulate that to your daughters. Isn't dad amazing because this is how God created him to be and he does it? It's a phenomenal teaching tool. It's also very encouraging to dads. Um, do you explain to your kids why your husband goes to work every day? Do you know why your husband goes to work every day? Um, do you know from Scripture why your husband goes to work? And we're going to answer that. And then for both mom and dad, do you agree on the goals for your sons? I hope you will after this morning. Do you agree on, on the importance of attaining those goals? And then can you commit to evaluate current problems and issues in parenting and questions in parenting in light of these goals? Because really this morning... I'm hoping that we're going to simplify a lot of those issues. So let me make some generalized observations about males in our culture today. And I think you're going to agree with this. And I think it's important to set this contrast. We are going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, we're going to get there in a minute. But let me just give you observations of males in our culture today. One is dads are dummies. I don't watch a lot of TV. And part of it is because years ago... In the sitcom world and, and everything on TV, it was really obvious that dads now are being portrayed as the dummy in the household, right? Um, mom's in charge. She's the smart one, mature and capable, and dad's just the dead weight, or worse. Um, we're gr your sons are growing up in a Peter Pan culture. Um, you don't want to let the little boys become men. Let them be boys as long as possible, 
Um, increasingly, the, the culture says that the government will provide for you and your family, so there's no reason for those little boys to become men. In fact, the new healthcare law, it's not new anymore, I guess it's about four years old, defines childhood um, up to age 26. That is phenomenal. Not in a good phenomenal, by the way. Um, boys aren't supposed to have convictions about anything. You let the women lead, they're better at it anyway. And they are. Ladies, you're more articulate, you're more perceptive, you're more gentle. And the guys often tend to look at that and say, yeah, they're better at it, I'm gonna let the women lead. It's our culture. Immense pride is exalted. Success is defined by the highest pay for the least amount of work. Success is defined by how early you can retire. Um, there's this incredible selfishness. It's all about me. I'm talking about the male culture. Relationships, priority, even religion now is designed to benefit me. And then there's the degradation of women. Pornography is so far um, so much more rampant than it was even a few years ago. It's commonplace. It's everywhere. It's on ESPN. You can't watch a football game without seeing some version or form of pornography. And all of that is the degradation of women, and, and that couldn't happen if there wasn't so much demand for it. There's an article that appeared in the City Journal in 2008. It was called Child, Man, and the Promised Land. It's a secular assessment or a comparison of manhood now versus back in the 1960s, and I want to read this to you. It starts off, it's 1965, and you're a 26-year-old guy. You have a factory job, or maybe you work for an insurance broker. Either way, you're married, probably have been for a few years. I'm annoying Rick, apparently. Probably have been for a few years now. You met your wife in high school. Thank you. You've already got one kid with another on the way. For now, you're renting an apartment, but you're saving up for a three-bedroom ranch house in the next town. You're an adult. Now meet the 21st century you, also 26. You finish college, and you work in a cubicle in a large financial services firm. You live in an apartment with a few single guy friends. In your spare time, you play basketball with your buddies. You download the latest songs, have some fun with the video games, take a leisurely shower, massage some product into your hair and face, and then it's off to the bars and parties. Not, not so long ago, the average mid-20-something had achieved most of adults' milestones, high school degree, financial independence, marriage, and children. These days, he lingers happily in a new hybrid state of semi-hormonal adolescence and responsible self-reliance. Decades in unfolding, this limbo may not seem like news to many, but in fact it is to the early 21st century what adolescence was to the early 20th a momentous sociological development of profound economic and cultural import. What has happened is adolescence has been created. There's boyhood where you're clearly a boy. There's manhood where you're clearly a, a man. And now there's this parenthesis where you get to choose. Am I going to be a boy or am I going to be a man? And the question is, is that biblical? Or maybe more importantly, is that anti-biblical? And we want to answer that this morning. Adolescence in our culture is a dead period. There's no expectations of an adolescent. There's no responsibilities. There's no failure, no pain, no discipline. It's an open-ended period of either childhood or manhood, whatever you want it to be. And it's dangerous. And we want to contrast that with um, history in this country. You know, the average age of the male of a male at 
Yale University in the 1800s was 13 years old. Imagine sending your 13-year-old off to college. Ben Franklin was sent out from his family to apprentice full-time, living outside the home, working in his new career at the age of 13. Adolescence didn't exist in the 1800s. You didn't have that period of choice. You went from boyhood to manhood. Of course, life expectancy in the 1800s was, in, was about 45 years, so Rick, you and I would be dead by now. So there was a bit of an urgency to get through boyhood, get to manhood. There is no such urgency now. So, and and adolescence, by the way, came out of child labor laws where they were trying to resolve a problem with a good idea, but that good idea, like so many good ideas now, has been extended and, and perverted and has become the bane of our culture. And it does have significant economic impacts. So I want to do the contrast back another way. I want to read you excerpts of three congressional medal Medals of Honor citations. These are for 18-year-olds. Well, today we would call boys. These are real stories. These are young men who at the age of 18 um, did such amazing things that Congress recognized um, their bravery. George Watson, 8 March 1943. When the ship was abandoned, Private Watson, 18 years old, Instead of seeking to save himself, remained in the water, assisting several soldiers who could not swim to reach the safety of the raft. This heroic action, which subsequently cost him his life, resulted in the saving of several of his comrades. Weakened by his exertions, he was dragged down by the suction of the sinking ship and was drowned. And it says his extraordinary, valorous actions, daring leadership, and self-sacrificing devotion to his fellow man exemplify the finest traditions of military service, 18 years old. You can Google these, by the way. I encourage you. Get your boys to read these. It's incredible. I'm just, re- I'm just excerpt- excerpting the citation. Junior Van Noy, 18 years old. When wounded late in September 1943, Private Van Noy de- declined evacuation and continued on duty. Two weeks later, October 17, he was a gunner in charge of a machine gun post only five yards from the water's edge when the alarm was given that three enemy barges loaded with troops were approaching the beach in the early morning darkness. The story goes on. I'm going to skip it. Eventually, he's grievously wounded. He remained at his post, ignoring the calls of nearby soldiers urging him to withdraw. When he was found, he had expended every round and was found covered with wounds dead beside his gun. 18 years old. John Towell. John, um, 18 years old, when I'm about to, I'm just going to read you a couple sentences here. An entire movie was made about this young man's life. Um, he served as a, a rocket launcher gunner. He was mortally wounded by a mortar shell. By his heroic tenacity at the price of his life, Private Tal saved the lives of many of his comrades and was directly instrumental in breaking up the enemy counterattack. 18 years old. Those are three. Those are the only three. Congressional Medal of Honors ever awarded to somebody at the age of 18. Why? Because not very many 18-year-olds do this. That's one thing. But the second thing is, at 18, they would never put you in this position. Because you're a boy now. These men, some would say boys, demonstrated at a young age an understanding of the significant elements of true manhood. Service, humility, commitment, obedience, chivalry even, and leadership. And each of them was honored posthumously for their service and their sacrifice. 
What a contrast to most of the 18-year-olds that I see. And I come from Southern California, so maybe it's different here, but no responsibility. What they talk about is the top score on video games. There's no concept of hard, sweating labor. Um, No goals, no commitment to anyone or anything except for themselves. And most wouldn't die for anyone or anything. And part of that is because their moms wouldn't let them. And now I'm not totally negative on manhood. I'm trying to draw a distinct contrast and to tell you that unless you and I work hard on raising boys, that is where they end up. That is their natural bent. And we live in a culture that says just let them go in the direction they're going to go. So what is biblical manhood? Is biblical manhood firing your gun and killing a lot of enemies? No, it really isn't. And I don't want to leave that impression. Biblical manhood Um, is very specific. God designed men as opposed to women for a very specific purpose. And it all starts back in Genesis chapter 2. And I want to remind you that this class is about how to parent children, not Christian children. And that's really, really important. Because what we're about to look at, you might say that is for Christians. And really what we're going to look at in Genesis 2 is the creator's design for the human race for fulfillment and blessing regardless of whether your young man, your boy, gives his life to Christ or not. And this goes back to last night. You teach them the fear of God. Live according to the design that God of why God puts you on this earth, and there is blessing in that. Okay? Today we focus on sons, and we're not focusing on how to raise Christian sons, and we're really not talking about how to raise sons. We're talking about how to produce men, as God defines manhood. Okay? So, let's look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to give you um, what we're going to do here real quick. There's three roles that are unique to men. That God designed for man, that he designs specifically as opposed to woman. And here they are, provider, leader, and protector. God designed men to be the provider, the leader, and the protector. And I want to show you that way back in the um, um, beginning of scripture. And, uh, and then we're going to talk about um, eight disciplines that I think are good to teach our sons, to teach young boys, to teach young men, to develop in young men so that when they come out of your home, they can fulfill the role of leader, provider, and protector. Let's look at provider. Genesis chapter two. You're familiar probably with this passage. Verse five, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The Hamilton translation of that is, there was no man to work. Okay, that's what cultivating the ground is. How many of you have ever cultivated the ground? It's work, okay? All right, then it goes on to the the creation account. God creates man. We referenced that last night. Go down to verse 15. After God has created Adam in verse 15, it says, then the Lord took Adam or took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Hamilton translation is, he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Work. Now, this is phenomenal, profound, simple truth. And guys, when I first understood this, this was shocking to me. 
Work is not a curse. Work was part of the pre-fall condition of man. It is why God created man. Work is a blessing. Because in that, before sin entered the garden, God said the creation is good. God created Adam because there was nobody to work the earth. He created Adam specifically to work the earth, to work. Okay? Now, over in Genesis chapter 3, flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. We're, we're diving into um, after sin um, enters, the fall of man. The Lord pronounces a curse on Satan, on Adam, and on Eve, which is the same to say Satan, man, and woman. And in verse 17... He says, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, curses the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Here's what happened. Work did not become a curse. Work has never been part of the curse. Curse is the design and the purpose of man. What happened is the role of man stayed the same. The purpose of that role changed. Prior to sin, God provided the food. After sin, the purpose of work changed. It was survival, provision. So the role of man didn't change because of sin, but the necessity of fulfilling that role did change because God was no longer going to provide food. It was now going to be the result of labor. Okay? Provider. Man's first role that we're talking about here is provider. Let's talk about leader. Just jump back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I love this story. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And what I love is the next thing you hear is about animals being created. Why does God put in the Genesis account that man needs a helper suitable and then he inserts the creation of all the animals? Well, let's see why. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field but for Adam. Here's why God did this. Why did he say I'm creating a helper suitable for him and then talk about naming all the animals? Because there was a drama happening. God was showing Adam that he really did need a helper suitable to him. Because in verse 19 it says, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And then the Genesis account goes on to talk about the creation of Eve. Okay? Now, you might say, what does that have to do with leader? Well, we're getting there. Man was incomplete. He needed a completer. God allows him to name all the animals so that Adam comes to the conclusion that he really needs a helper. Did God make a mistake? Was God trying to show him that the that dog is man's best friend? And Adam just didn't get it? No. God was bringing all of the animals to reinforce for Adam that the creation of Eve was really going to be a remarkable thing. The completion of man. And we'll talk about that next session. That has enormous implications when we talk about raising little girls. Okay? So in Genesis 3, let's talk about how the, what this has to do with leadership. 
I already read these verses. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and then he, he pronounces the curse. Adam abandoned his leadership role. That's how the, defi- the sin in the garden by Adam was defined. He followed the voice of your wife. He didn't lead. And by defining his sin, God is defining in the garden the role of man, which is to be the leader. That's precurse. Men, don't raise your hands, don't respond in any way. But some of you are convinced that the fact that you're the leader in your home is a curse. It's not. It wasn't part of the curse. That role was defined. That role was established prior to sin entering um, the Garden of Eden. It was part of God's creative genius, his perfect design of man to provide and to lead. And the fall of man now has made that role very difficult um, to fulfill. Leadership in this context, by the way, is a role. It's not a giftedness. It's a fact of life. It's the essence of the difference between a man and a woman. And unless your little boy is gifted with singleness, and probabilities are he's not, your little boy is going to be a husband someday. How scary is that? It should be exciting. And someday your little boy is going to be a father. And by virtue of that, he's going to be a leader. It's what God created him to be. A young man who says, I'm not a leader, might be right, but if it's true, he's in for a very hard life. He must be urged to become a leader, to develop the skills and the disciplines needed to fulfill that role that God created in his perfect design for your little boy. Your little boy is a leader by God's design. All right, let's talk about protector. Genesis 3 Um, We've read it, the curse defined Adam's sin as abandoning his role as a leader. I just said that. By implication, it also defines the purpose of that leadership, which was to protect Eve. To protect Eve. And we're not just talking about physical protection. We're talking also about spiritual protection. And if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You're probably familiar with this passage. Husbands, this is probably the roughest passage in Scripture for us. Because it starts off in verse 25 and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ, as, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Some of the most devastating words ever said to a group of men. Because when you consider how Christ loves the church, um, we have a lot of work to do. Verse 26, why? So that he, Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The role of a man is to love his wife the way Christ loves you and I. So to reread that, your little boy needs to be raised so that he can sanctify her cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, which, by the way, means he probably needs to know the word, right? He needs to know the fear of God. And that she would have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. That's spiritual protection. That's leadership. It's all wrapped up there in Ephesians chapter 5. All right. Leader, provider, protector. Let's get very practical now. 
What I'm gonna do is go through eight disciplines. There could be 16, there could be 64, there could be four. I've come up with eight. And what I wanna do is give you eight disciplines that by definition are habits that do not come easily. And all of these disciplines are gonna take work. Parents have to be committed to this labor. And let me reference last night. I made the statement, it was a bold statement, a lot of you reacted to the statement, um, and I'm really glad. And by the way, your response last night was so encouraging. Um, Thank you. Um, But I made the statement that you can't mess your kids up any worse than how they arrive here. And, And in that context, that is saying that in the most basic relationship between God and man, there is no further divide that you can create than how they come into this world. That's not licensed to say, okay, I can't mess them up. I'm not going to mess them up. I'm just going to let them do whatever they want. That means you missed the last three quarters of what we talked about last night and what we're going to talk about this morning in two sessions and tomorrow morning. Parenting is a lot of work. Our success as parents is not in the outcome, but in the effort. To teach the fear of God, wise living, obedience, repentance, and pray for salvation. And some of that work now, we're going to get very specific and talk about the biblical disciplines of a man. And I'm going to reference a biblical man a lot this morning. I want to define that term. A biblical man does not mean a Christian man. I know I've already said this, but I want to be really clear. Your goal is to teach the fear of God and wise living and biblical truth and obedience and repentance and teach them with a goal that you produce young men who are biblical men. What do I mean by that? They know that there are to be a provider, a leader, and a protector. And they know who God is. Okay? So let's work through these. these this is... All of these point to one of the purposes of a, man, of a man, and all of these, I believe, go counter to the natural bent of your son, which is why I call them disciplines. And if they go against the natural bent of your son, that means it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of prayer. First one, work. And by the way, as I go through these eight, I would encourage you, please don't go home this afternoon and implement all of this by 2 o'clock. I want to come to church here tomorrow and not get slugged by a 13-year-old who's bigger than me. Okay? Go home and pray about this. Talk through this. And consider one son might need real, a lot of work on numbers four, five, and six, and another son needs help on two and five. And by the way, next month that might change. They nail number two pretty quickly, and it's time to move on to number three. Be very, very careful. Um, And what I'm giving you is going to be overwhelming. It's overwhelming to me. I love preparing to teach this because it's a reminder of the disciplines that need to be in my life. And and dads, I'm going to say it one more time. You and I have got to be modeling this. So the first discipline, work. You can't be a biblical man if you're not fulfilling the most basic role of man, which is to provide for his family. This is countercultural. This is counter the natural bent of man because our natural bent is laziness. It takes discipline to love work. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Pretty basic, isn't it? Pretty blunt. That's the New Testament parallel to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. If anyone's not willing to work, he's not to eat either. 
And work is to provide needs, not to um, accumulate wealth. The discipline of work requires the discipline of perspective and moderation, and it's important. Work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. Work existed before the curse. Teach your boy that it's what God created him to do. And work is not just for the provision of his own needs. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, Anyone who does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The role of man is to provide for himself and his family. Proverbs 6, 6 to 11, great passage. I know you know it. I don't know if you realize this, but this is um, a father calling his son a sluggard. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. That is a father talking to his son. Please don't implement this by 2 o'clock this afternoon. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. You know that passage. That speaks to the most fundamental basic role of a man, and that is a father telling his son, stop being lazy, get to work. It goes on to say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Very basic. Very true. Great passage um, to uh, study with your sons. And I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you here today. And let me just pause and say this. What I'm giving you is an outline of discipleship of your sons. These are great passages to consider yourself, to understand yourself, and then at the right age, probably don't want to do this with your two-year-old, but to go to coffee or, or, or whatever your son likes to do and sit down and have these conversations and show him from the Bible um, these truths. Okay, number two, money. And I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, and then I'm going to go back through them again and talk very practically about what this means. Number two is money, the discipline of money. We've talked about work, now money. You cannot lead and provide biblically if you cannot distinguish between the command to provide for yourself and your family and the culture's pull and demand that you have everything you could possibly want. The discipline of money is not to accumulate money. That's easy. People sometimes are really drawn to that. The discipline is to have that proper perspective. Okay? Or on the other side, some men really struggle with the concept that they, they believe that someone else is responsible to provide for their family. A biblical man understands he's to provide um, and, and put that in perspective. I'm an accountant, so I get asked to talk about money a lot. So I'm going to restrain myself because I could really go off on money here. But I've done a study of Scripture, and there's really only five things the Bible says you're supposed to use your money on. And I think you should teach your sons this. You should teach them that they're to provide for their family. They're to pay what they owe. They need to pay their taxes. They need to save for the future. And they need to give it away. Those are the five things the Bible says you're supposed to do with your money. And when you talk about providing for your family, the character you're teaching when you talk to them about that is self, or I'm sorry, obedience. They're being obedient to what God's called him to be. When you're teaching him to pay what he owes, you're teaching him integrity. That you keep your vows. When you say you're going to do something, make monthly payments, you make those monthly payments. When you teach him to save for the future, you're teaching him self-control. 
He's exhibiting self-control. When you're teaching him to pay his taxes, you're teaching submission to authority. And when you're teaching him to give it all away or to give away what he has in excess, you're teaching generosity. All of that's good. All of that's biblical manhood. And there's two things in particular that I think are important in teaching the discipline of money in addition to those five uses of money. One is contentment, which we've already talked about. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. If we have food and covering, it says in verse 8, with these we shall be content. That defines um, contentment for a man. Another one is generosity. When I say give it away, there's a couple opportunities to teach here. First of all, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. That is kind of a, a consolidated, simple um, summary of when your son comes to church, it is good to build into him the discipline that he brings money and puts it in the plate. And that's a discipline that does not come naturally. There's also the command to give to those who need when you're teaching your young man to be generous. First John 3.17 says, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a generosity. Both of those, work and money, go to that role as being a provider. Very key to developing in him um, fulfilling, fulfilling the role of a provider, the proper use of money and an appreciation and a love, a love for work. Now let's talk about leader and protector, the third discipline. I call this the discipline of purpose. Purpose. A biblical man knows who he is and what he is about. Said another way, he knows he is or will be a provider, a leader, and a protector. I think it would probably warm your pastor's heart if he went up to the teenagers in this church and they could all articulate that when I grow up, I want to be a leader, a provider, and a protector. That's the discipline of purpose. He's not known as an idle or a lazy person because he knows why he's here. That's what I mean by purpose. Everything has a purpose. Great verse Great passage for you to go through with your sons. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wrapped up in that verse is purpose, wisdom. We talked about wisdom last night. Obedience. We talked about obedience last night. It's all there. Great verse. A young man should be trained to understand and explain the why of everything he does. That's, that's a purposeful man, and that's, that takes discipline and work. Okay, number four, discipline of convictions. Convictions. The essence of biblical manhood is the merging of strength and courage. This point speaks to the biblical man who demonstrates the strength and courage of his convictions, not his abilities. Let me say that again. The discipline of conviction speaks to the biblical man who demonstrates his strength and courage of his convictions, not of his abilities. Leadership cannot exist without firm convictions. 
And this falls really closely to the, to the third discipline of purpose. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, you know this verse. It's an interesting verse. I think it's kind of misread sometimes. I want to remind you that this verse was written to the church, men and women. It was not written to men. But it talks about men. And the verse is, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. That verse was not written to boys, telling them to act like men. That was a verse written to the church saying, look around you at the biblical men around you and act like them. That's leadership. That verse is the goal of your young man. That he has the convictions, the the be on the alert. That's the protection. Standing firm in the faith, that's leadership. Be strong, that's leadership and protection. And be an example. In other words, the church should be able to look at the men in their in their congregation and say, those are the people I want to be like if I want to be like Christ. You can do a word study on be strong and courageous. Dads, I really recommend it. Deuteronomy 31 on into the um, uh, first chapter of Joshua. I think it says be strong and courageous 12 or 13 times. And some of that is to a man who's 80 years old who was a war hero who they still study in the war college here in the United States when they train men how to fight war. And yet he's about to go into battle. He's about to do what the Lord's telling him to, uh, what he wants him to do. And the Lord is telling him to be strong and courageous. And it's, it's interesting. If you would, turn to 2 Samuel. I was going to skip over this. I just can't. Such a great story. 2 Samuel. Chapter 10. This is kind of like hacking Agag to pieces. You want to tell your sons a story that they're going to love? This is a story they're going to love. And it's profound meaning when you're teaching them the discipline of their their convictions. Verse 9, when Joab saw the battle was set against him in the front and in the rear, let me just be blunt, he is surrounded. There is no way out. It looks like he's about to die. He selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans, but the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. We are completely surrounded. We're going to be back to back. You're going to take care of the front. You're going to take care of the back. And if you start to fail, we'll turn around and help you. Dire situation. Verse 12. Here's the key. Be strong. And let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. That is the verse to focus on. Be strong and courageous. Why? For the sake of our people. That's leadership. That's the example. So it says for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. That's for the sake of the name of God. Christ. In other words... Do what you need to do. Be strong and courageous for the sake of those who are looking at you and they know you serve God. Let them get the right picture. For the sake of God's reputation. And then he says, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. That's humility. You're called to do the right thing. You do the right thing and you let God take care of the result. That takes conviction. That does not come naturally to a boy. And the result may be defeat but at least go down doing the right thing. 
It's an amazing story. And it goes on, Joab and the people who were with them drew near to the battle against Arameans and they fled before them. The Lord spared them. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. And when Joab returned from fighting against um, the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem, the Lord spared them. The idea is, as, as a young man grows into the roles and functions of a leader, a provider, and a pro- protector, he should be strong and courageous, and he should get that from you. God will not fail him or forsake him. Do you believe that? You need to teach that to your son. The Lord will be with him. The battle is the Lord's. He should do it, whatever it is, for the sake of the people, his wife, his children, those who are watching him, and for the sake and reputation for the Lord, of the Lord. And that is his motivation, and that is the discipline of conviction. Number five, humility. The discipline of humility, strength and grace combined in one person is the ultimate measure of a man. Strength and grace. Strength and courage mixed with pride is ungodly, and it's toxic. You teach your young man convictions, and you allow him pride And that is a toxic combination. And you all know what I'm talking about. 2 Timothy 2.1, great verse, ties it all together. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This verse annihilates the cultural and popular view of strength, which is physical, intellectual strength, emotional strength, self-sufficiency, And it defines that true strength comes from Christ. And this goes right back to being strong and courageous. Every time you see strong and courageous, it is in the context of the Lord saying, I am going to take care of this. I am in charge. Your job is to be strong and courageous. That is, that's the conviction, but there's also the humility of understanding the Lord's in charge. I'm not, I'm My job is to do what I'm supposed to do as a young man, to be a leader, a provider, and protector, knowing that the Lord's going to take care of the details. Okay? 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sakes to every human institution. This goes to humility. Submission. 1 Peter 5, 5 says that you young men are to clothe yourselves with humility. And I love Micah 6, 8. You know this verse, I think. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That doing justice, that's the convictions. That's the strength and courage. Loving kindness and walking humbly, that's the discipline of humility. Number six. We've looked at work, money, purpose, convictions, Humility, number six, the discipline of being a one-woman man. This is very important. A biblical man understands that other than very rare circumstances, he is called to love, lead, protect, and provide for one woman on this earth. And that's not his mother, by the way. He should be prepared for this. This truth should be the guiding light in all his relationships with girls and then as he gets older with women. The discipline of being a one-woman man. 
that for the rest of the days on his life, there is one woman, with some exceptions, obviously, but there is one woman for the rest of his life that he is going to be devoted to providing for all her needs, that he gets the honor and the privilege of leading, and who he has the obligation and the responsibility to protect. That is so contrary to the messages your son is going to get as he walks through this earth. So the discipline of a one-woman man. And I probably don't need to say a whole lot about that. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. You're familiar with that passage. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And now how did I jump from being a one-woman man to sexual immorality? Because sexual immorality can't really happen in the context of a young man who understands that relationship is one person. That discipline, God's will for your life is your sanctification, your purity and your honor, that chivalry. And it goes on to talk about lustful passion, and which comes out of emotion and selfishness. And that's how the world behaves. But a young man who understands that he's a one-woman man, and you've trained that discipline into him, isn't um, as apt to fall into that kind of sin because he understands that God created me to lead, provide, and protect one woman. Okay? All right. Let's go back through these eight really quick. I'm going to go through and give you some uh, real practical um, um, ad- advice on these eight on, or, or applications of these disciplines. Okay? What did I say? Six? Did I say eight? Yeah, I'm so confused. <laughs> Six, I promise. I'm so glad you're paying attention. Thank you for not getting up and leaving. All right, number one, work. Work begins now. Whatever age your son is, work begins now. Now that you understand that God has created man to work and you need to teach the discipline of work, doesn't that change the conversation about homework? And doesn't that change the conversation about yard work? And doesn't that change the conversation about washing your car because you want your car washed? Because you're teaching your son to work and to love work. Dads, we need to be really, really careful and communicate to our sons that we love work. We need not be dishonest about that. We don't always love work, do we? But we need to be very, very careful. And this, is all, this was always such a reminder to me every time I thought about this. I needed my young ladies, my daughters, to stop hearing me grouse about going to work every day. They needed me to talk about what a blessing it is that I have a job, that I have the opportunity to work, that I get to fulfill God's purpose in my, for my life. And men, it is really, really important that you pursue excellence in your work, that you pursue a love for your work, and that you communicate that to your sons. Ladies, you should express appreciation for the hard work of your husband. You should articulate for your kids, especially your daughters, by the way. Honor your husband, even if he's a rascal. Honor your husband because he goes to work. And by going to work, he is fulfilling um, what God's designed him to do. The discipline of money, I think it's probably obvious. Giving and contentment, um, working with your sons to set aside money to give away, Um, Very practical way to teach that. Good for you to talk about it. Contentment comes from a right relationship with God, not wealth. Teaching that 
to your sons, having that conversation. Teach your son to flee from the love of money and you need to model it and talk about it in your life, obviously at at the appropriate age. Discipline of purpose. I want to be sure and say this, that I'm not in saying this, that you're, I'm not promoting no fun allowed. But I do think that our sons need to be able to understand the purpose of everything they do. They need to be able to explain why they are doing what they're doing. And when you talk about how they waste their time, that conversation now should be in the context of the discipline of purpose. What are you on this earth for? How does that time commitment fit into ultimately what your goals are? Can you answer the the following questions for your sons? Why do I have to go to school? You ever get asked that? Why do I have to go to church? Why are you making me get a job? Why do I have to mow the lawn? Why do I have to take out the trash? All of those are questions, dads particularly, that you need to be able to answer. And it's something other than because I told you so. If you're falling back on I told you so, you're missing the opportunity to teach and shepherd in the fear of God, wise living, obedience. Train your sons to think and live with a purpose. There's excellent answers to all those questions. And I think you know what those answers are. And until you can answer the question in your own life, how do you expect your son to be able to answer those questions? Why do you go to work? You should be able to answer that question because your son's going to ask you that someday. Discipline of convictions. Teach your son to have convictions and to base those convictions on the truth and wisdom of God's word and to live according to those convictions. Teach him to communicate those convictions. We joke in the youth department at Grace Church about um, the typical teenage boy, his, um, his vocabulary is limited to three words, dude, like, and um. <laughs> Got to work on that. If you have convictions and you can't articulate them, what good are those convictions? You can't lead unless you can articulate those convictions. And here's a hard one. I think you've got to stop protecting your little boy. Again, age appropriate. But stop protecting your little boy. Allow his strength and courage to be tested. Allow his character and his convictions to become his own. Incubators do not produce strong and courageous men. Stop doing everything for him. Your lack of practical faith in the sovereignty and providence of God will be replicated in the adult version of you, which is your son. In other words, men, this is all on you and I to some degree, that we need to have the strength and convictions um, of truth and then allow our sons to develop those, watch those convictions be tested and stand. And as he grows into the roles of leader, protector, and provider, you should expect him to gain in strength and courage. Why? Because God will not leave him or forsake him. All right, humility. There's a lot I could say here. I'm going to skip over a lot of what I was going to say here because we're out of time. Humility. Teach your son to look for opportunities to submit. That's right out of 1 Peter 2. A godly man, a biblical man, looks for people to submit to. That's a discipline. Some of them are obvious. Submit to government, submit to the church, submit to you. But a a biblical man looks for people to submit because he knows that if he's in submission to the authority that's over him, um, he's, he's 
he's living according to God's design for him, and that teaches humility. And let him fail. Um, we deal with this all the time at our church, particularly with parents of teens. Um, parents are really, really fearful of their kids failing. And failure builds in conviction. Failure is hard to watch. Um, and when he does fail, let him feel the consequences. That's how you build strong strength and courage and how you build convictions and also how you build in humility. Without the risk of failure, there's no motivation for success. That's something our government and our culture has completely left behind. That is a biblical principle right out of the Bible. It, it feeds humility that without the risk of failure, there is no motivation for success. And without the risk of failure, there's no humility. Okay? For, uh, number six, a one-woman man. Sexual purity. It's, is, his role in life as a one-woman man directing how he views and interacts with music, movies, video games, young ladies, his mother, his sisters. What's his view of dating? For those of you, we won't go into that because a lot of you aren't even there yet. But when you get to dating, um, you know, his view of women, whether he has developed the, the discipline of being a one-woman man should be a huge indicator of whether he's ready to even start dating. Okay? Is he ready to pursue marriage? Well, does he understand that he's a leader, a provider, and a protector? That's the first step. The second thing is he developed the disciplines to be able to get there. If not, he's probably not ready to be married, and then you have to ask, why is he dating? All right, we'll leave that there. There's so much more we could say on dating. Dating's a fun topic. and we can, uh, I can answer questions later, maybe Sunday night in the Q&A. If you want to talk about dating, we can talk about that. Let me close this session in prayer. I'm a little bit over. We're going to take a break till about 10.30, and then we'll be back in here to talk about girls. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for the gift of parenting, for the gift of children that you've given us. Lord, we've gone very quickly this morning through some principles of what you've designed men to be, Lord, I pray that you would give great clarity to each of us here as we seek to honor you in, in raising biblical men. Lord, I pray for the moms and dads in this room, that they would model it, that they would talk about it, that they would admire it, that they would exalt it in the it being your design for men. And Lord, that they, you would give them the wisdom and the discernment and the strength to teach their boys, to model their boys and and to produce from their home men who understand the fear of the Lord, who live in the practical wisdom of Scripture, understanding and in obedience to the roles that you've designed for a man. Lord, we're grateful to you for your word, for the great clarity and even the simplicity, that this isn't complicated, and yet, Lord, it is hard, and we need your help. We're dependent on you. Lord, we are grateful to you for the time we've had together. We pray this in your name. Amen.